morning, everyone. How are we doing? It's good to be with you. As uh, Chris mentioned, my name is Morgan, and uh, I love Chris. Uh, he's kind of intense, right? Right? And uh, he's actually, I'm kind of a little bit of a kindred spirit with him in that I love his passion for uh, following Jesus and giving his whole life uh, to the mission of Jesus. Uh, but one of the things in our passion, sometimes we oversell things. And I talked with the video guys this week, and, and they wouldn't let me do it, but I wanted to put in some subtitles uh, during that video. But uh, I have to clear just a couple things up. So first, uh, when Chris is talking about that person across the city, you know, texting and staying up all night praying, I was thinking about that him as well, right? I had not met him yet. I'm like, who would do this? This is wild. I don't even know why I'm doing this. How, why is it somebody else? So uh, that's first. Second is our group was 12 months, not 18 months. And we were 2 to 4 p.m., not 2 to 5. And I just say that all because, you know, I don't want you thinking our group should get more Jesus points than, than we did, okay? So uh, all jokes aside, Chris is an amazing guy. He's really impacted my faith over the last year and uh, thankful to be a part of his discipleship uh, group. I still remember when I came into New City the first time about 16 months ago. I'd met Matt Miller through our New Thing Church Planters group, so a group of church planters that come together to chat and encourage each other and such. And on one of those occasions, I tracked him down and said, you know, I'd, I'd just love to learn your story. And so he invited me here in the middle of the week and walking through the building and just sharing how New City came about and all that good stuff. And right out the doors, as many of you probably know, you have that, that wall of fame and you have all these little circles with names. I'm like, Matt, what is that about? And uh, he began to tell me just the story of these discipleship groups that had begun to multiply and see all kinds of life change amidst them. And I just remember thinking, how do I get in on that? Right? Like, how do I get in on that? And, and funny enough, that same morning while I was here, Josh Jackaway and Chris Moikes were on site doing their discipleship group. And funny enough, three to four months later, I, I was invited in. So it's been a really neat story, and I'm very thankful for this church. Um, with that, uh, since you also don't know me or my family, I'd love to tell you just a little bit of our church planting story. As Chris mentioned, we are going to be planting in Prairie Village. And so for us, church planting really hadn't been on our collective radars, uh, but God had been pinging my radar about uh, back to the year of 2007. I found myself in the Dominican Republic serving there, and I was living with a family who the dad w- was a pastor. And I found myself in the, one of the first services ever going to his church falling asleep. Uh, and it was a small church, charismatic and obviously Spanish speaking. And if you don't know, charismatic Spanish is about 10 times faster than regular Spanish. So for someone like myself, who's conversational, but nowhere near fluent, uh, most of what was going on is, is going on over my head and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, I realized, man, I'm going to be an awful missionary here if something doesn't change. And so from then on, I began to bring a journal. And I found myself regularly journaling about what would it be like to start a church in a coffee shop? Now, nothing really came of that dream. Uh, And I went to seminary following that summer. And there really just weren't any church planning circles at that time. And, And so the fall of 2010 rolls around and I become a college pastor. And so I'm working with college students. And one of the things I decided to do, or the opportunity came about, was to start a Christian club on a campus where where there really wasn't any Christian activity. And I got a lot of energy out of that, a lot of joy, a lot of affirmation. We saw God do some great things in the lives of leaders. And just that that activity of birthing something when previously nothing had existed, uh, God was doing something with that. Fast forward again another four years, and it's the spring of 2014, and my wife Chris and I begin to really talk seriously, think and pray seriously, is God wanting us to start a new church? And so we started going down this new journey. With that, though, 
we knew that we weren't ready to start a church the next day, right? Even when we came to the conclusion, yeah, that, that's what the Lord is up to, so what do we do now? Uh, we knew we needed what, what's called a residency, where you get to go into training to plant a church. Uh, and so that's how we found, how we came out here from Pasadena, California, is uh, we hooked up with Restore Community Church. And if you don't know, your lead pastor actually was with Restore in a residency as well. Uh, so there's kind of a little bit of a, a shared story there. And it's been a great journey. So we showed up October 2014, right on the Royals' first magical World Series ride, right? And uh, so fun time to show up in the city, loved the buzz and just meeting people. And, and it's been great. We Both of us were on staff with Restore from October 1st till the end of this past May. And so June 1st, we're actually sent out from staff as the plan. Um, and we're now full-time with our church, Serve Community Church. And so we're kind of in this pre-launch phase. We're hoping to, to potentially launch in the spring. And so that's a little bit of the church planting story. Um, from that, I'd still also like to just share my family a little bit further. So let's throw up a picture here uh, of my wife and my kid, Luke. There they are. All right. So this is my beautiful family. So that's Carissa and that's Luke. And uh, a little bit about Carissa. She is going to be our Kid City Director. So birth through fifth grade. Um, she's very versatile. Her undergrad was at Mizzou uh, with medical dietetics. So she's a registered dietitian. And then she also did a Master's of Intercultural Studies. So she's got like that right, la- right brain, left brain thing going on. She can kind of do it all. And uh, she loves families. She loves kids and, and really wanting to influence the next generation. She also has a heart for getting the church outside of the Sunday morning walls, right? What we're doing here this morning matters, but most of our life is lived out there, right? And so she loves the local global impact, and so she'll be a key leader for us there as well. One more picture of my son, Luke, okay? So one more. Uh, This is Luke back at Easter, and I want to say, you know, I love all kids, all people, right? Everyone is made in the image of God, but I just feel like God has given us a good-looking baby, right? (laughs) Like, he's just a good-looking kid. Uh, some of the things he's doing right now, he's waving. He likes to clap. He makes fun shriek noises. And then another thing he really loves is kisses, okay? And so when I say kisses, though, I mean open-mouth, make-out-style kisses. So in our home, you, you have to have a good swivel, okay? Because he's going to dive in, and you better hope he's getting your cheek and, and, and not your mouth while you're talking to somebody else, okay? So that's Luke. That's a little bit about them. And uh, now we can kind of begin to dive in this morning, all right? Last couple weeks, uh, Matt has told me you guys are going through the book of Acts and uh, kind of this series called, Is This the End, right? And, and so Jesus, in one of his last appearances, uh, he, you know, he lives this amazing life. It, it ends in this excruciating death on the cross. He gets buried and then he rises from the dead. It, it's quite wild, obviously. Um, and uh, in that, when he rises from the dead, he starts to appear to his disciples because he needed to teach them and needed to let them know he, he's still alive, he's risen. And so in one of those last, actually his last time, he, he teaches them uh, and they ask him this question, uh, you know, is this the end? You know, are you going to restore all things? And he basically tells them, no, get to work. Uh, but before you go to work on my behalf, uh, you need to wait for the power of the spirit because you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem right here in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. That's what I have for you. And then he, boom, he poof right back into heaven, right? And the disciples are staring there looking up. And I probably would have been too. That seems pretty crazy. Uh, and so angels come and, and tell them, hey, go do what he just said to do. Go wait on him. And so today's story is what happens next, 
right? What happens next? And so we are in the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, you can, you can go there. If not, we're going to have it on the screen. I've also got it in your bulletin. We're going to go to Acts beginning in verse 12. It says this, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, there fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, a keldama, which is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who had been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. And they cast lots, and a lot fell to Matthias, so he is added to the 11 apostles. All right, so maybe you've read the book of Acts, maybe you haven't. Uh, I know Matt last week was really encouraging, hey, church, we're, we're going to be in this series for a while. Please start reading ahead, you know, so that we can be growing together as we hear the word on Sunday morning. So maybe you've been taking that up, and you probably know, if you have read the book of Acts, you know that there are a lot of action-packed moments. It, it is a pretty crazy book. It's, it's the story of the early church. And this morning's passage is not all that exciting, right? Let's just be honest, okay? This is one of those stories where sometimes you tend to just want to jump over it. Um, you know, they pray a bunch, they gamble a little, and they choose this guy named Matthias, all right? So, all right, casting lots isn't gambling, I understand. But um, either way, it seems like one of those, like, okay, let's move on, right? But this morning, actually, what I want to do is say, let's not do that. Uh, and, and let's actually turn the clock back just a bit and figure out who this guy Judas is, right? And, and why, what there is, why this was important to, to fill his place and what we can learn from the story of Judas. And as I've been thinking about this man who, who ends up betraying Jesus, I've been reflecting on his life a bit, and we're going to look at some snapshots this morning. Um, you know, one thing I've thought about is him, and then he has these 11 disciples, right? Jesus' inner 12. These 12 men spent more time with Jesus than anyone else on Jesus' earth, time here on earth. That's pretty amazing, right? Like no one else in human history spent more time with Jesus than these 12. And Judas, even though he ends up betraying him, was one of those 12. He got to see the miracles. He got to hear the teachings. He got the behind the scene life of Jesus. And yet something didn't stick. Something ends up with him having the rock bottom of all rock bottoms. So I think it's worth taking a look at his story and seeing how we can position our lives differently from this man, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to go to Luke chapter 6 to start. We're going to see these, like I said, snapshots of Judas's life and kind of walk through it, okay? So beginning in verse 12, it says this. 
One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, that's who we're talking about today, who became a traitor. So Judas is like all these other disciples, right? Jesus goes to this, this mountainside. He prays to the Father all night, and he invites these 12. So the first thing we notice, Judas is not an accident on this team, okay? So he is not an accident on this team. Judas, Jesus, sorry, Jesus uh, was inviting him in intentionally, okay? Now, Luke, the writer of this, obviously gets to write it afterwards, and so he tells us he's going to be the guy who betrays Jesus, right? So we're clued in as the reader. Jesus knew that, but his disciples did not, right? So he's really just one of them, and and Peter said that in his speech. This Judas was one of our number who shared in our ministry, okay? And so Judas is invited on, and he begins to experience Jesus' kingdom life right alongside these people, right? And he had this front row seat. So in the Gospel of John, one of the other books of Jesus' life, uh, John writes in chapter 2 that Jesus saved a wedding party, right? So Judas and the disciples got to party with Jesus. They watched him turn this water into wine and really help that family save face and experience the abundance in it. Judas also was sent out. Uh, There's this time where Jesus turns uh, these loaves of bread and fish and feeds these multitudes, thousands of people. Judas was one of those people passing out bread, just like everybody else wondering, Jesus, how how does it keep coming? I, I don't understand, right? There's another scene where where Jesus sends uh, all his disciples, not all of them, but 72 of them out into these towns ahead of him, two by two, all right? And and so Jesus said, I'm going to these places. What I want you to do, teach about the kingdom, heal, and cast out demons. And Judas, like these other disciples, are doing all of that. And I'm telling these stories just to really get us in the shoes of Judas. He's, He's around. He's doing all these things that the other disciples are doing. We also know that the disciples have a lot of down moments, right? They had moments of doubt, of ignorance, of resistance. Uh, for example, Peter on, on one occasion uh, literally tells Jesus, he yells at Jesus that he's not going to die the way that Jesus keeps saying that he's going to die. And Jesus has to rebuke him. There's a scene where the disciples act like whining babies. And I have an 11-month-old. I know what a whining baby sounds like. And uh, they do this when when they're in this boat and this storm is coming. And they start fearing for their lives and and really throwing a fit. And uh, they get Jesus up and he calms the storm and says, what's wrong with you guys? You guys could have just came to me in a more normal way. You know that I have this type of power and authority. Like, what's wrong with you guys? Right? And so so Judas experiences these ups and downs of following Jesus. But there's a turning point in his story, all right? And that is in Matthew chapter 26. And in Matthew 26, it says this, beginning in verse six. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which he poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare for my burial. 
Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Pause. This is the last week of Jesus' life where we're getting very close to his death. And so he receives this worship and says, why are you bothering this woman? Verse 14, important. Here's, here's an implication. Here's an action after it. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is a pretty fascinating turn of events, right? This woman pours out this perfume and the disciples are shocked. They're all enraged. Judas, for whatever reason, then, then goes, that's it. I, I'm, I'm going to turn this guy in. Now, I, I didn't mention in, in my intro, Chris did a little bit though, but uh, I grew up playing baseball, uh, even idolizing athletics, uh, getting a lot of my identity um, from baseball and my performance there. And, and so bottom line though is I spent a lot of time in locker rooms. I spent a lot of time out on baseball fields. And there's a couple things, you know, usually as an athlete, you, you don't want to smell and you don't want to be around the athlete who smells, right? Okay, so this, is, this sounds obvious. And I bring this up because it's a real simple solution how you avoid that. You buy a $2 stick of deodorant, right? And you put it on. Now, the funny part though is it's funny to think back at this time, there, that didn't exist. There wasn't deodorant that you could just go and buy for $2. And so funny, the rich and the poor have this huge divide, right? So the poor can buy these expensive thing, uh, you know, casks of perfume. It's Chanel Plus, right? And we're talking that type of perfume. That's what this woman pours on Jesus. And, and the poor people are left to smell bad and to not really be able to do a whole lot about that. Um, and this was a problem. And so that's why these disciples are so shocked because most likely they couldn't have afforded to do that. And so they can't believe that Jesus would receive this woman's action. And amidst that, Jesus corrects them. He teaches them something about worship, that worship is about adoration for him. It's about connection to him. And so although in their eyes, this was a waste of a lot of money, for him it wasn't. He was also pointing to his death on the cross that's coming. And he was also trying to teach them that no matter what you value in this world, whether it's an accomplishment, a possession, a career pursuit, anything that we hold most dear, most valuable, Jesus is saying none of that. It all pales in comparison to what I'm about to do on the cross. Because this is how you and I can have a relationship with the living God is by trusting Jesus as the Lord and Savior, recognizing that on the cross, he gave his life for us and that we can't earn God's favor, right? And, and so he's pointing to that. He's teaching them. So whatever happened in the disciples, they're all shocked. But Judas goes to a new level. He says, that's it. Like, I've been with this guy for three years. I've seen his grace, his mercy, his love, all the ways that Jesus had invested into him. Something doesn't set right, and, he's, and he chooses to betray him, all right? It flips his lid. He had seen enough of the audacious kingdom of Jesus. Now, John's gospel, what's interesting about this story, gives us one more lens, and so we're going there, John chapter 12, because although everyone's frustrated, Judas acts differently, and it explains why. So chapter 12, verse 4, it says this, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, betray him objective, why wasn't this perfume sold and that money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, something I also didn't say about myself is that for numerous years, I was a server, okay? And servers get paid on tips. Judas knew a big tip could have been coming his way if that had been sold and given to the poor because it would go to their plate and he would take 
some of it. So we see that Judas's personal kingdom is being threatened by Jesus. And that's for whatever reason, that's the turning point for him. And so he partners with the chief priests and he looks for this opportunity to betray him. And he sees that plot through. We see uh, this at the end of Matthew 26 in verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, this is in the middle of the night, garden of Gethsemane. It's the last, it's the night before Jesus will go to the cross. Judas, one of the 12 arrives with him with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going out once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Isn't Jesus amazing? You know, this is one of the reasons why I choose to, to love and to follow this Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life. Because even at the darkest places, with Judas, who he invested in for three years, he still is able to call him friend, even as he kisses him in betrayal. It's unbelievable, right? And so th- this interaction between Jesus and Judas, it, it really shook Judas to the core. And we see the end of his story just following that. It says in chapter uh, 27, verse 1, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned to the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money in the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. And so we see a rough ending for the life of Judas. Now, now what do we take from all this, right? So, so we've seen these little snapshots. What do we take from this? I think one angle that I, I want us to camp on for just a bit is this issue of confession, okay? The issue of confession and also creating an atmosphere where one can have confession, an atmosphere that we like to talk about uh, with openness, honesty, and vulnerability. It's something that actually I, I learned from Chris. I learned from discipleship group is that that is one of the purposes of a group is to create that atmosphere where openness, honesty, and vulnerability can occur. And so I want to ask maybe a strange question. Go with me here for a moment. But what if, what if as Judas, you know, again, let's go back to that scene where where the woman pours out the perfume. Everyone gets frustrated. But what if Judas in that moment, instead of responding as he did, responded in confession? What if he shared with his other disciples how he was feeling? And when I say sharing, I don't mean gossip about Jesus. I mean Oh, like looking inwardly at his stuff. You know why I'm angry? I'm angry at Jesus and I'm angry at him because I could have got a bunch of money because I've been stealing from our collective pot. What if he had made that move instead and then probably had to deal with some of the consequences of stealing, right? But what if he had actually moved towards confession? Now, what if even, let's go one step further. What if he actually talked to Jesus about it? What if he had confessed to Jesus that I'm stealing? something that Jesus probably already knew. What if he had confessed to Jesus? Now, Judas is an interesting case, so I don't want to push it too far uh, because even in back to Acts 1, Peter's speech, we know that hundreds of years had foretold Jesus was going to bring someone onto that team who would betray him, okay? So Judas is a unique case. I want to, I want to, just kind of put that on the side. How it applies to us, though, is that we don't have to go down the road of Judas, right? We can actually step into confession and not have to do what happened 
to Judas, to do something that we know is wrong, we know is a bad idea. And so we instead need to push into these environments of honesty, openness, and vulnerability. And so a big idea for us to to really kind of get our heads around is a setting of openness, honesty, and vulnerability is key. But here's the second part. It's important. One must step into it and engage it in the moments of deepest temptation. That's what Judas did not do, right? Judas had that environment. He had that environment with the 11, with Jesus. They had many nights where they talked about all kinds of things. Jesus had corrected and rebuked his disciples numerous times and yet also showed a great shepherd heart to still love, invest, and care even even when they really messed up. So he had experienced that amazing environment and yet in this moment did not step into that with confession. So it's not enough just to think about it, just to talk about it. We've got to actually, when, when we're in those environments, we've got to bring our stuff and expose it. So one group of people I want to talk to today is just simply, if you're in currently a discipleship group, are you bringing your stuff? Are you exposing it? You have to actually engage it. You can't just talk about it, think about it. You have to actually engage it. Some of us, maybe many of us in the room, haven't been in a discipleship group yet. Uh, my hope, though, for, for every person in this room, is that everyone at least has a trusted friend, a family member, maybe a ministry leader here at New City, where if you are wrestling with something, if there is something going on in your life, that you would have at least one person that you could step into this issue of confession and expose yourself, right? And expose yourself because healing and love and forgiveness can come in those moments. I also want to talk about the flip side of confession, the person who receives it. Right? So the person who receives confession is also very, very important. Rule number one, don't freak out. Right? Don't freak out. And I say that because if somebody makes the move of saying, okay, I, I trust so-and-so to bring my stuff to them, and you freak out, condemn, uh, push away, exclude, is that person going to open up again? No. No, it's game over, right? So there is a flip side of confession is how to receive that. And the encouragement I would want to give this morning is lead with love, lead with grace, okay? Uh, and, and that doesn't mean there isn't the, the, the move of truth as well. Jesus said that he embodied grace and truth, not one or the other, both. But I do believe there's something to leading with grace. I think it's what Jesus did. Um, And and there are many churches that I think embody this. One of my favorites or one that sticks out the most is a church in Las Vegas. It's called Verve. Uh, A friend of a friend is the lead pastor there. And uh, I guess this would be a defining moment or a defining truth of their church. Their first baptism was a pimp. Okay? Their first baptism was a pimp, and they've seen over 300 baptisms uh, of homeless people, addicts, gamblers, strippers, all kinds of people that, that many of us w- would have the tendency to go, I don't even want to be around those people. Those people, we've seen Jesus just transform their lives unbelievably. And so he talks about our church is going to lead with grace. And then, yeah, we also talk about truth. We help people actually take next steps and transform the dark places of their lives. We're not choosing one or the other, but it's that moment of the place of leading with grace first that allows for that space of honesty, openness, and vulnerability to go forward. And then you walk alongside someone, okay? So I think it's important for us to think about that. Now, my hope for this church is that it does continue to be a place where openness, honesty, vulnerability, and the the lives of real people thrive right here. 
My hope is that you're experiencing that freedom of being accepted in those dark places and then being walked alongside forward for healing and for actually following Jesus authentically. My hope for myself and for Chris, as we are in this pre-launch phase, about to start a church in the next year or so in Prairie Village, uh, is that we would raise up leaders who also lead with love and grace, create those places of openness, honesty, and vulnerability, and we see real lives become transformed. Uh, We're excited to birth this life-giving church uh, whose sole mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. And so I want to go back to something that Chris said at the beginning, and we're going to close this way, is just simply, uh, we are in this stage of gathering a launch team. We're in the stage of birthing this new church. And if you have any heart for for someone who's far from God, if you have a heart to be a missionary for a season, uh, to become on a launch team, to really think and pray about that, uh, I want to turn your attention to your bulletin, because there is a little card in there somewhere. Uh, And it says, Serve Community Church on there. And there's a place where you can put your name, your email, and your phone number. And if you have interest in hearing more about the specifics of our church, we'd love to invite you uh, to come alongside the journey with us. Uh, next Sunday, actually, we're, we're going to host a vision night for people here at, at New City. And uh, we would love for you to join us. So if you have interest in that, I would ask that you'd fill it out and put it in the buckets as they come by and uh, come on the journey with us. All right. So let's pray as we step into confession. Lord, you are so good. God, we just pause and we recognize that you are the hope of the world. And uh, we're just so thankful that you have invited us to to find and follow you. And so, Lord, I I do pray for every person here. Maybe maybe there are people who are holding on to some really deep, dark stuff right now. I don't know that, but you do. And I pray if that's the case, uh, that spirit, you you would tug on them this morning, that you'd speak to them and that you'd help them to open up to somebody this week. Um, and that, Lord, they would experience your grace and your awesome freedom and your hope and your joy. Uh, So, Lord, speak to this church. Move in our hearts and our minds as as we continue uh, in worship this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen.